audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. What? No! What? No! Are you having a good day? What? No! I know you are because of that big smile of yours. You're always smiling. You have such a kind face. What? No. So thanks for reminding me to smile because I like to do it too sometimes. See? Watch me. How's that? I've heard friends smile at each other a lot. What do you think a friend is? What? No. Take your time. No rush. So I'm guessing friends dance. <laughs> Watch this! Take it! Subtle. Okay, enough dancing. You know what friends really like? Tickle fights! Hey, Knucklehead! Hey, You know that's just an inanimate ceramic mug, don't you? What? Crazy sport. <laughs> That was so much fun! Oh! You know what? You taught me something. What? No. I think I now know what a friend is. Someone you can just sit with and say absolutely nothing and still have the best time. I love you. <laughs> what? No! Oh, man. Ooh. Good morning. Uh... What is a friend? <laughs> That's the question. For, Sporky? Sporky's asking, what is a friend? Uh, what is a friend? I don't know. Do you know? Facebook tells me I have 1,867 friends. Uh, on Twitter, I follow something like 160-something people, and 160-something people follow me. I don't know. It just kind of averages out. On Instagram, it's something like that, too. Are those friends? I don't know. I don't think so. What do you think? Are those your friends? Okay, let me ask you this. How many, how many of those 1,867, for me, might, might be a low number for you. It might be 3,000. It used to be a competition. Remember that? When you thought, like, you could get the most friends on Facebook that nobody's on anymore? So... Um, <laughs> So uh, when's the last time you had any one of those 1,867 friends over to your house like this year for dinner? Okay, what about last year? Probably more. What about the last decade? None? Not very many. Yeah, not very many. Okay, so not very many of those thousands of friends that we supposedly have have spent any time in our home in the last decade. Friendship is hard to find. And I think partly because it's a high bar. Why are good friends so hard to find? Well, I think in part because we've seen actually a decrease in friendships. We've seen a decrease in friendships. So former U.S. Senator Benjamin Sass observes that the average American has gone from more than three to fewer than two intimate flesh and blood actual friends over the last three decades. More alarmingly, the number of Americans who count no friends at all, no one in whom they confide about important matters, no one with whom they share life's joys and burdens, in the mid-2000s, one quarter of Americans said that they had no one with whom to talk about things that matter. That was triple the percentage from the 1980s. And these trends have not slowed down, Sass says. So why is this the case? Well, there's a few, few things, all right? So a few things. Geographical mobility. All right, so uh, Harvard professor Arthur Brooks says, work is one of the key sources of friendship and community. 
Think of your own relationships, for instance, he says. Surely many of your closest friendships, surely many of those friendships, perhaps even your relationship with your spouse, started in the workplace. And yet the reality of the workplace is rapidly attenuating as people hop from job to job and from city to city. How many of you, by show of hands, have changed jobs in the last 10 years? Okay. How many of you have changed jobs in the last five years? The last two years? Almost. I mean, the last three and a half years. Okay. Yeah, so, th- so that's a lot. And what that means is that, you know, so few of us are going to be putting down meaningful roots, sometimes in a geographical location, like the neighborhood that you live in, because usually when a job change happens, Lord willing, it also means a promotion. And with a promotion, we feel like we need a better living situation all of a sudden that we were perfectly happy with all before. So we move from one place to another place. And so whatever relationships we started to build in that place have now well, they've come under stress because of the distance between you and your next-door neighbor once before. And you got to start over again. Hi, my name's Eric. Hey, Bob, I can't remember your name ever, but hey, it's good to see you again while you cut your grass. And you have those little conversations until finally you maybe invite them over to your house because they're your next-door neighbor. And you talk, but, but this happens, geographic dislocation. It's constantly happening, especially among what tends to be the demographic of this church, which is you know, highly dominated by millennials, and so we're constantly moving, either moving cities or moving neighborhoods, definitely moving jobs, so that's one of the things. Um, another thing is more time on parenting, that uh, millennials and down are spending more time on parenting than any other generation in the history of the world, probably, and what I mean is that um, you know, we are invested from the time they wake up till they come home from school, we're doing their homework with them. We are then taking them to soccer practice or football practice or football practice or all kinds of practices. They have dance practice. They have, you know, travel ball on the weekends. And then what are we doing? Um, Then we come home and crash because we're exhausted at the end of the day and we don't have any time for friends. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just pointing out that it's a different thing than what's been done up until this moment that the moment a lot of us are living in is different than our parents. There's no room for friends, really, in there. Um, So there's more time on parenting. There's also what some people are calling workism. So again, the American population, more than any other country, more than any other country in history, is hyper-focused on work. I mean, we are spending unbelievable amounts of hours at work or in work now, with a lot of us working from home, And that also means no time for friends. When you work 60, 70, 80 hours a week, you're doing good if you're spending time with your family. There's also what I call social fracture, which is to say that relationships, deep relationships like marriages or um, long-term, you know, um, partnerships, if you will, for those who might not be married, um, are breaking under the stress of life or other circumstances or whatever it might be. And what that means is that the network of friends that have been developed around that relationship now breaks. And uh, you're lucky if you get one out of the friend group, but a lot of the friend group just feel awkward around both of you now, and so they tend to just move aside, right? And so, you know, social fracture, social media is another one. I think that's probably obvious, but just in case it's not, Sass, he says, social media companies promise new forms of community and unprecedented connectedness. But in turn, it turns out that at the same time that any Billy Bob in Boise can broadcast his opinions to thousands of people, we have fewer non-virtual friends than at any other point in history, in decades. We're hyper-connected, he says, and we're disconnected. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist George Will echoes Sass when he says, Americans are hyper-connected but disconnected with fewer non-virtual friends, fewer non-virtual friends than any other point in decades, with the median American checking, according to a Pew survey, a smartphone every 4.3 minutes, and with nearly 40% of those who are 18 to 29 online almost every waking minute, we are addicted to distraction and parched for genuine community. 
And so you might not be surprised then to realize that not only um, are we seeing a decrease in friends or in friendship, we see an increase in loneliness. So we see an increase in loneliness. Sass again points out that doctors are sounding the alarm about what public health experts now call our loneliness epidemic. Former U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy speaks widely about the physical toll of persistent loneliness. And there's so much that I'm not putting in here, so just hopefully this suffices. But as he told the Boston Globe, the conclusion is clear. The data is telling us that loneliness kills. A fifth of Americans volunteer that loneliness is a major source of unhappiness in their lives, and a full third of those over the age of 45 confess that chronic loneliness is a fundamental challenge with which they are struggling. Brooks, again, sees the same crisis. He says that America is suffering an epidemic of loneliness. According to a recent large-scale survey by the healthcare provider Cigna, most Americans suffer from strong feelings of loneliness and a lack of significance in their relationships. Nearly half say they sometimes or always feel alone or left out. Have you ever felt alone or left out? Maybe some of you, even in this room today, despite being surrounded by people that you attend church with every week, feel like you've never been more alone in your life. As a result, many of us don't even know what true friendship, deep friendship, even means or what it looks like. You know, one writer that I read this week uh, compared it to a person who's only ever had McDonald's. And that's what their view of friendship is. They've never heard of, okay, what's a great place downtown, you know, hot and hot, or what, what is it? What, the essential, oh man, the pasta at the essential is amazing. Literally, like I didn't know what goodness was until I put it in my mouth. And I'm glad that the chef comes to our church, so you need to go get some. But it's, it, so it's, yeah, so friendship's like that. It's like we have these shallow really like insignificant, not very meaningful, not life-giving relationships that we call friendship, when out there waiting for you to discover it is this beautiful thing that God has given called true friendship. So I want to look at the unfolding of David and Jonathan's friendship in 1 Samuel 18 through 20 so that we might better understand and pursue this good gift from God. It's very simple this morning. No major application other than to give you the tools to recognize so that you might find good friendship and then develop it. So let's pray. God, we ask for your help this morning. We need help. All of us, I think, know what it is to long for friendship and for it not to be found. And I hope that today we will be encouraged in the gospel as we see the ultimate expression of friendship in Jesus, in you, God. I hope today that you will also equip us with tools to be able to see this realized in our relationships. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, uh, in case I forgot to mention it, which I do sometimes, my name's Eric. Um, I love you guys. Um, I don't love you enough, and I'd like to get to know you more. And that's, you know, I'm part of the problem. So we're going to find that out today. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I'd like to take us through three, three things about friendship. So the first one is true friendship is Found. All right, so if you have your Bible, um, you can look at 1 Samuel 18, verses 1 through 3, and that's where we're going to start. I'm not going to do what Austin does. I'm not going to cover the whole of, like, these next two chapters. I'm not going to give you necessarily the full um, kind of synthesis of what's going on. I trust that you've been following along, reading that, and you'll be able to do that as well. It's not super complicated this week, um, like other weeks can be, um, in terms of what's in the text and what's going on. Um, but 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 3... As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day, took David, 
and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. So, David, as you will remember from last week, has just took down Goliath, the giant, the man who's head and shoulders above everyone else, who up to this point, it was Saul who was head and shoulders above everyone else. And then Goliath stepped on the scene and uh, Saul disappeared. Um, but this kid, David, decided that, you know, who's going to stand against the, the God of Israel and his armies? Uh, so I'm going to go up there and show this guy what's up. So he did that. He took a sling and a rock and took this guy out. And then, well, there's children in the room, but I think we know what he did with the sword afterwards. It was intense. Um, And so you might imagine after a moment like that, I mean, as excited as we get when somebody scores a touchdown, when he took that sword and finished the job, everybody, I'm sure, lost their minds. And so it's not a surprise that Saul is like, come on in, like, you're my new adopted kid, live here with me, uh, you know, in case any other giants come out. Um, but, but Jonathan is here, and he, he meets David, and it seems like, best we can tell, this is the first time, the first time that David and Jonathan have ever met. Um, you know, David and Jonathan are in the story up to this point. Jonathan has been on the scene for like several chapters, since like chapter 13. David has been here now on the scene for a couple chapters, but they, neither of them have been on the scene at the same time in the same place together. And so we actually don't have anything in the text to tell us that they like even knew each other really before this moment. And in fact, far from being an obvious friend, David really should have been an enemy of Jonathan. I mean, think about it. He was not the, David was not the heir to the throne, but he became a pretty big deal after killing Goliath, which in those days, you're always looking out over your shoulder for who's going to try to challenge you for the throne. I mean, literally, that's why they have a cup bearer, someone who drinks from the cup, because people literally poisoned the king's drinks before that point, and so it became a full-time job. For somebody to make sure that the king didn't get poisoned. And I've thought about, like, I could get around that. I don't know why that was like a foolproof plan, but um, all right, so he was not the heir, but he was becoming a big deal. Jonathan should have been worried about his own future as the, you know, successor to Saul, his father, and David should have been eyeing the throne, right? Any shrewd person next to power is kind of thinking about that. Now, not any of us in here, right? But Definitely, you know, in that time, I mean, that was, uh, and so Saul, in fact, eventually would realize the threat posed by a popular David, and he would try to kill David, like, repeatedly, and often, and viciously. It was weird and sick. Um, It was like Game of Thrones, which I've never seen, but I know some of you have. You probably shouldn't have, but you have, and so that's what this is like. This would be a much better Game of Thrones, like the people who did The Chosen, They should definitely do, like, David's life. It would be really good. Uh, But it is here that we find the secret foundation to friendship, okay? Friendship is never found by looking for it. That's the secret, all right? Don't tell anybody. Friendship is found by looking for something else. Ralph Waldo Emerson said it like this. He said, we talk of choosing our friends, but friends are self-elected. I like that. C.S. Lewis, who's better to me, said, People who simply want friends can never make any. The very condition of having friends is that we should want something else besides friends. Friendship must be about something, even if it were only an enthusiasm for dominoes or white mice. Those, and here it is, those who have nothing can share nothing. Those who are going nowhere, can have no fellow travelers. I think Lewis and Emerson are right. It is only in looking at something else that you happen to notice that someone else is looking. And it's at that moment that lasting and abiding friendships begin. It's electric. I know that we've all felt that moment with someone. We're like, wow, this person is amazing. I want to know them for the rest of my life. You've had that moment. It just it felt different, and you didn't know anything else about them, 
but in like one conversation or maybe five, like a very short amount of time, you just felt like there was something different about this person. I know, in fact, all of you have had that, that are married, because the person that you're married to is who your best friend is. I mean, if you have a good marriage, I hope. They're your best friend. Now, you may not be on the best of terms right now. You may not even like them at this moment, but you love them, and you are at fundamentally, like, you are friends, right? Um, That electric moment happened for you there. Um. So, yeah, so Lewis and Emerson are right, and Lewis goes on to say, he says that friendship, when two or more companions discover that they have in common some insight or interest or even taste which the others do not share and which till that moment each believed to be his own unique treasure, like the thing that you really liked but no one else really thought was cool, right? I don't know what that is for you. Um, We all have them. Uh, that moment, it may be even a unique burden. It may not even be a good thing, but it's something that you feel like is your unique insight. Well, the typical expression, Lewis says, um, of opening friendship like that would be something like, what? You too? You too? I thought I was the only one. If you had that moment, that's a good moment. That's an exciting moment. That moment for me and Katie was the night that we met we left a worship service where I randomly like, met her with some other friends. We go to Zaxby's at Lee Branch, and I sit across from the table, and I start talking about, you know, I, I like John Calvin and Martin Luther, and she's like, well, I like Martin Luther, and she quotes something from, I think, one of those two. I don't even remember because it was like, you know, 15 years ago. But in that moment, I was like, what? You too? And now, you know, four kids later, here we are. Um, and, but it's not only just romantic relationships. You know, I meet, I try to meet, once a quarter with a group of guys. I call them the Renaissance men, all right? We do this once a quarter, roughly. We wait till all the kids are put down, and then we come over to my house, or one of theirs, usually my house, and we have a good drink of some sort, whatever that might be for you, a soda pop or something else, and we uh, maybe eat some good food, usually pizza, bagels, um, and, uh, and we talk about great things because we all really, we feel like, and this is what we share, this is the unique insight, is that, you know, a lot of us break our worlds into these different pieces, but we think that Christ says there's not a square inch over which he does not say mine. And so everything is connected, politics, poetry, history, everything. And so we love just to come together and just talk about the biggest, most important things of our day so that we might be helpful to other peoples throughout their days, right? And so we do that, and it's fun, and it's great, but it's this deep thing that we share together. Um, David and Jonathan, their friendship, coming seemingly out of nowhere, started like that. They started because they saw the same thing, more specifically, I think Jonathan, after seeing David's zeal for Yahweh, for the Lord, to go out and face this giant when no one thought that he'd be able to win, but he knew and he trusted in the bigness and greatness of his God, he said, that's someone after my own heart. I've got to know this guy. And so from the start, it's like, me and you, we're the same. You know, you ever heard that? We're the same. He loved him as he loved himself. They both had a deep love for the Lord, and Jonathan had a deep love for the Lord. And it was situated in this kind of national identity. I know it's kind of weird because, you know, we like to separate, you know, Christ and politics or whatever. But in in that time, Israel, it was a theocracy. And so, you know, God was the king of the nation. Politics was about religion. And so they both had this zeal for their country and their people Because these were the people of God, and this was literally, in that time, it was God's country, if there ever was one. Yeah, so, um, I digress. Uh, And so, this friendship starts out of nowhere, but it becomes, it's this moment, this affection that goes deeper, and it's unique to them. And it doesn't have to be like that. It can be an experience. I mean, obviously, it can be a thing. It can be, um, you know, a hobby, but it can be an experience. Experiences really are some of the strongest uh, moments of aha, you too, in a sense, because when people share formative experiences, no matter how many years go by, 
their conversations have a way of finding and returning back to that formative experience. You know what I'm talking about? I have a friend from high school that we were best friends in high school, and, you know, we've gone our different ways, and we've kind of become different people, but we're still, like, pick up right where we left off and talk about all how the glory days, like how great high school, because for us, high school was awesome, um, and the glory days of high school. So, the, you know, it's the formative experience going through something together. Maybe it's a mission trip. You've been on a mission trip, and you spend a week, like, with, if you get showers, cold showers, and seeing, like, you know, awful poverty or, you know, spiritual destitution and people who need the gospel and you're like sweating and working to try to get the gospel to them, to try to build them up and encourage them and you're spending 15 hours a day with them for a week, that is an experience that will bind you together potentially for the rest of your life. The thing that you look at with other people in deep friendships always has a kind of revelatory power to it. A revelatory power on the person next to you. Every time you look at them, it reveals aspects of that person that draw you in and help you see both glimmers of the thing that you both mutually love and reflections of your own soul in that person. So first, true friendship is found, all right? So it can't be fabricated. It's another way to look at it. True friendship is not fabricated. It's a grace. It's a gift. It comes if you're looking, but we don't know when or how or in what way. But it doesn't happen by accident in some senses. So if you're looking, I think it'll come. But you don't know when because you can't fabricate it. So true true friendship is found, not fabricated. True friendship, second, is forged. So just because you find a potential friend does not mean you will keep a permanent friend. I think we all know this. David and Jonathan's friendship is forged. Friendship is forged through transparency and vulnerability. Transparency and vulnerability. So in 1 Samuel 20, verse 41 Um, we see that, uh, well, as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed there three times. So backstory is David knows that Saul's trying to kill him. He sends Jonathan to figure out and confirm that this is the case because Jonathan's like, I think I would know something like that. He's kind of my dad. And lo and behold, he is actually trying to kill him. So they come up with this plan for, for Jonathan to be able to get a message to David to tell him the decision there. Like, is Saul trying to kill me or not? Well, the plan happens, and this is them meeting after the plan for Saul to basically tell him, yes, like, my dad, I mean, for, for Jonathan to tell him, yes, Saul is trying to kill you. And so he fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times, and it says, and they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Tim Keller Um, who just went home to be with the Lord on Friday, he said, uh, and often has said, that friends always let you in. But why, why is that the case? Why do friends always let you in? I mean, we know that to be true. That rings true, I think. Friends always let you in. But why? And I think it's because, well, in some sense, you already are. You're already there. Every true friend is the extension of another. I mean, really, that's what a true friend is. You feel like some of you is in some of them, and some of them is in some of you, that there is a sharing of souls. That's why Jonathan said that he loved him as he loved his own soul, his nephesh, his own self. Cicero recognized this, you know, a guy who lived a long time ago. He said, When a man thinks of a true friend, he is looking at himself in the mirror. A friend, a friend is a person who who hurts when you hurt, who's happy when you're happy. Not because they have to be, not because you're making them, but maybe some of you, uh, you have kids, okay, so this probably comes a little bit faster, quicker there. You know, when your kid is hurting about something, whether it's the skinning their knee or it's a broken relationship, like, you don't want to hurt. You just hurt. 
It just, something in you just hurts for them. Like, you don't want to see them hurt, but you do hurt so deeply. You just wish you could take it on yourself. You wish you could substitute yourself into their life and take on what their burden is. That is literally the idea of bearing one another's burdens, that you come to them in in empathetic partnership where you share their burden and their shoulders maybe sit up a little bit more because they finally were able to unload some onto you. A friend is a person who hurts when you hurt, who's happy when you're happy. You're just excited because they're excited. You don't even care about the thing. If you're a spouse, you, you kind of know this. Like, your spouse has things that they're excited about that you, you don't care one lick about. For me, I like going to see Marvel movies, and I'm super pumped about them when I go. Katie's like, yeah, you know, she can take it or leave it. Sometimes she's kind of excited depending on what it is. But I'm excited, and so she's excited with me to go to this thing and watch this deal. And And that's what it is to really love someone and to be friends with them, to share souls with them, stay excited about what they're excited about because of your love for them. I need to keep going. Uh, Again, Cicero, it is the most satisfying experience in the world to have someone you can speak to as freely as your own self. There it is again, about any and every subject upon earth. If things are going well, You cannot possibly enjoy your prosperity to the full unless you have another person whose pleasure equals your own. Should things go wrong, your misfortunes will indeed be hard to bear without someone who suffers as badly as yourself or even worse. Not someone who's got their own thing that they're suffering about and y'all are just commiserating. No, it's like the friend who enters into your suffering and feels it like you feel it, maybe even worse than you do, because of their deep affection for you. Friendship is forged through transparency and vulnerability, but friendship is also forged through commitment and constancy. Jonathan and David's friendship may have begun in mutual affection for, God's, uh, for the God of Israel and for the people of God, but it was forged through commitment expressed through covenants. All right, so... 1 Samuel 18.3, we saw this. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. But it wasn't just the one covenant. They renewed the covenant. Some, some scholars think they actually made additional covenants, but at least renewed the covenant in chapter 20, verse 16, and then again in chapter 23, verse 18. So on three separate occasions, they're coming together and renewing or affirming this deep bond of commitment, decision to be for one another. These covenants were demonstrated through constancy. So the commitment that they've decided in their hearts, that they've pledged with their mouths, is demonstrated, is shown through their always being there for one another when it counted. And so 1 Samuel 19, 1 through 2, And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. Not in anything David could give him, not anything that he did for him, but he delighted in him, in who he was, in what he was. In verse 2, Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. Or 1 Samuel 23, verses 16 through 17. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. Because David was still on the run, and it wasn't easy sleeping in caves and sleeping on rocks and running at every moment, not knowing who was going to be around the corner, having to flee to the Philistines and come back because his life was a constant risk. It wasn't a bed of roses. It was difficult. And so Jonathan comes to him in his moments of need and strengthens him in God. And he says, do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel. Now he's like almost like prophesying. It's been prophesied over him, but he is reaffirming this prophetic word from from Samuel before. That you shall be king over Israel. It wasn't clear back in 18 verse 1 when he knit his soul together. So it wasn't like, oh yeah, like 
this is pretty inevitable, so I better get close to this guy. Like, I don't think that was on the table at all. It was just, here are these people being united because they are, they're one in some mysterious way. And now it becomes clear later that, well, he's going to actually be king. And so he encourages him to keep his eye on what God has for him in the future. And he says, you shall be king over Israel. And get this, here it is. Not out of gain, but out of camaraderie. He says, and I shall be next to you. I shall be next to you. It reminds me of like Ruth, like in Moab. It's like, you know, where you go, I will go. Your God will be my God. That's that kind of commitment there. I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. Jonathan was a Proverbs 17, 17 kind of friend. A friend who loves at all times. He loved, and he, he loved and was there for David in the good times and the bad. There are friends who are more like Proverbs 19.4 kind of friends, whose um, well, wealth brings many new friends, as you might, uh, might know. But a poor man is deserted by his friend. So when you fall on hard times, all those friends that were there before are nowhere to be found. And, uh, well, when times get tough, they're... Nowhere to be found, because in those moments, you have nothing left to give. You know, Katie, as I mentioned in the last sermon that I got to preach, Katie and I adopted a little girl from India a few years ago, Noelle, and we eventually found out she had a terminal illness, and, um, and, uh, but I still remember, I still remember the weeks of sitting by Noelle in the hospital at night, because I took the night shift, so I slept there. And uh, sitting in the hospital at night after we first brought her home, um, while they were trying to figure out what was wrong with her, and, and then we just kind of received the diagnosis. And, uh, and you know who was there with me late into the night praying and laughing and empathizing and crying? My friends, Eric and Bradley. You know who texted me just a few weeks ago on the anniversary of her death this year? friend Chris. I think he remembered actually before I remembered. Because in some ways, your friends hurt as much or more than you because they love you. And you know who remained with me through all, all of that and so many other trials that we just don't have time for? It's my friend, my best friend in the world, Katie. For better or for worse, sickness and in health. That's a true friend. Tim Keller also has said, friends, they don't just always let you in. Friends never let you down. Friendship is always found, but it's not always kept. If carried out in the spirit in which it was birthed, then it will become something else altogether, actually. It will become family. Proverbs 18, 24, a man with many, many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Proverbs 17, 17, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for or because or through adversity, through challenges, through the hard times. So when you move from the friend category, deep friend, to the brother category, to the sister category, it's through the narrow channel of suffering most of the time. It is a high and holy honor to be that kind of a friend to someone. And very few of us will ever find those friends at that level. And if we do, it will not be more than one or two. This is what happened with Jonathan. He forsook his birthright and his father's approval for David's friendship. Because David was now not just closer than a friend, he was closer than family. He was one with Jonathan in soul. Friendship is forged through transparency and vulnerability. It's forged through commitment and constancy. And friendship is forged through sacrifice and humility. 1 Samuel 20, verses 30 through 33. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. So he's disassociating himself from being his father now. There's a family break because of the choice that Jonathan is making. 
Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for, I shall, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and this is a friend. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled a spear at him to strike him like he had done so many other times at David. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. This is sacrifice. This is humility. Forsaking family and position for a friend. True friendship, lastly, is forever. So you, it's found, it's forged, and it's forever. Finally, true friendship persists even beyond death. After Jonathan died, David remembered his friend. And remembered is a covenantal word. Like he, he, he had obligations to his friend, and they extended beyond the life of his friend. He remembered the covenant and the commitment that he had made to him to care for his family. And so 2 Samuel 9.1, David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Not for Saul's sake, but for Jonathan's sake. 2 Samuel 9.7, And David said to him, to Mephibosheth, which was Jonathan's son, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. Now, hopefully this is a spoiler, but I'll just let you know that, that your pastor has preached a really good sermon on Mephibosheth. So I hope he preaches it for us. But that's for another day. Um, 2 Samuel 126, I am distressed for you, David says. This is after the passing of Jonathan. I am distressed for you, my brother, Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. And get this, your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. I don't know what that means. But it means that we're probably missing something if we look at that and we see that as an expression of same-sex attraction. We're missing something because this was the kind of relationships that men had. Not every man, but when you put yourself in battle, when you put yourself in the life that you have in someone else's hands on a regular basis, and you're like actually doing real manly stuff, like you know, building fires from scratch and killing and cooking your own food all the time, you don't have to posture yourself as being some sort of American modern-day masculine whatever. You can be, in our terms today, as effeminate as you want and still be a man who loves the Lord and loves your friends well. This is actually a sign of a lack in our day, a lack of having meaningful same-sex relationships that are not turned towards the wrong direction, but are turned towards God. And so I hope that even if there's anyone now under the sound of my voice who has or is struggling with those kinds of feelings, that that's okay. Like, Friendship is a good thing, and if all you ever have is friendship, then you've received more than most. There's a place for you that God has made. There, maybe it's marriage, but maybe it's just investing in deep and abiding relationships for the rest of your life. Jesus did it. Paul did it. And if it's good enough for Jesus and Paul, I, I dare say it's probably good enough for you. It's going to be hard especially with the culture that we live in. But church, we ought to be on the front lines of welcoming in anybody who might be struggling with a different lifestyle than our own, struggling with different tendencies than maybe our own, and we ought to be up front, holding their hand, charging them all the way to the kingdom. I'll be your best friend, all right? Hear me. If no one else in here, in this room, wants to be your best friend. I will be your best friend. Come and see me afterwards. Let's do this. Um, I need to finish. I just, my timer just went up. Um, so the, the problem then uh, with friendship, friends, is, you know, well, seeing all of that, I wonder how many of us actually have that kind of friendship with somebody. I hope you have it with your spouse. But what about outside of your spouse? You know, it's probably good that you have other friends too, 
Now, you don't have to, you know, be the life of the party and having everybody over all the time and, like, forsaking your spouse. That's probably the wrong direction to go, but there's probably a balance, okay? So, like, my friends, we meet once a quarter after my spouse goes to sleep and the kids so that I'm not taking from her, but I can still give to others, right? Uh, You can work it out differently. But I wonder how many of you have this kind of relationship. I suspect that the answer is not many of us, and I think it's because we're isolated, We'll never find friends because our lives are constructed to keep others out. We pull into our garages and close the door, and then maybe if we go outside, we go to our backyard surrounded by our, like, 10-foot fence so that our neighbors can't talk to us and say, hello, neighbor. You know, I think of, uh, what's Jim Carrey, the movie? Um, He's like, good morning, good evening, good night, and in case I don't see you or whatever, you know what I'm talking about? Um, uh, Truman Show, that's what it is. It's a great movie, you haven't seen it. Um, We are self-centered, so we're not just isolated, we're self-centered. We'll never forge friends because we are committed to pursuits rather than people. We're all so stuck in our own things that we want to make our names great, and so we forsake meaningful relationships with others. And we're afraid. We'll never deepen friends because we're afraid to be vulnerable, to let someone truly see us for who we are. So what are we to do? We have to recognize that we'll never find and forge true friendships with others until we have embraced true friendship with Jesus. The Bible says Jesus is a friend to sinners, Luke 7. Jesus says in John 15, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay his life down for his friends. Like, that's the epitome of love, guys, is laying your life down for your friends, that someone lay his life down for your friends, and he, he says, you, he's talking to the disciples, but you might as well read us. You are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. The God of the universe does not keep you at arm's length, friends, or at a distance, friends, but he invites you in, fully transparent, to know everything about him. Jesus says in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This is what friends do. They eat together. This is like the most intimate thing is to invite someone into your home and to sit at your table where life happens. But do you? Do you want him to come in and eat with you? To see the back rooms of the house of your life where you hide your mess? Do you want him to know you fully? To see every part, the parts that no earthly friend could handle. You'll only experience as much of Jesus as you let him experience of you. Friend, Jesus sought us and bought us. When we were searching for more, he found us. He was not only someone who was looking for the same thing as us, he was the thing that we've all been looking for all our lives long. Jesus forges our friendship through intimately coming to live in us, constantly committing himself to us, and sacrificially giving his life for us. We can always let him in, and he will never let us down. Jesus makes friendship forever possible and permanent. And looking to Jesus in this way, then, frees us to find and forge true friendships that will last forever. Because when we are not seeking others to fill a need, which a lot of us do, because we are rooted in friendship with Jesus, then we can fill a need for others. When we have been known and accepted despite all our failures by the God of the universe, then we can open ourselves to others. His acceptance is worth a lifetime of rejections. When we meditate on his faithfulness to us through all the challenges and all the mistakes and all the hardships, then we will more easily show up at the proverbial bedsides of others when they most need a friend. I cannot promise you, friends, I cannot promise you, friends, in this life, but I know you have a friend in Jesus forever and that you can be a friend to others now.
And so I invite those who are going to be um, doing communion, invite the band to come on up, and I'd like to just take this moment as we come to the table to remind ourselves. This is not something that we point out every time, but to be invited to anyone's table is one of the clearest signs of friendship, or at least of beckoning for friendship. And as a staple of our faith, God has placed the table as a constant reminder and experience of his love for us that was greater than any other love so that he would sacrifice his life for us. That's the mark of friendship, true friendship. And so as we take this bread, we need to know that it was broken by our friend. Like, not just some guy in a religion, but like, your friend. Your friend. Take it differently today. Your friend did this for you. And not just that, but as you take the cup, like, see your friend who was a friend to the last. John 13, he loved them to the end. And so he poured out his blood to wash them white as snow. But the cup also reminds us that that is not the end. In fact, there is a better day coming when he comes and returns and we take that cup with our friend that we've longed to see all of our lives face to face and we will drink at the wedding supper of the Lamb and it will be good drink. Like, anybody had good drink recently? Like, good drink. It'll make you feel better than any drink you've ever had because you'll be sitting eye to eye with the Lord of the universe who says, I love you. You are my friend forever. Best friends forever. Let's pray. God, thank you for this table, for this time, for this moment. And we come because we love you. You are our friend We want to know you more. We want to have friends like you. We want to be a friend like you. And so remind us of the goodness that comes through these kinds of friendships. Remind us of the goodness that came through and comes through every week as we take this bread and this cup, your friendship, oh God. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name.